It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, December 2nd, 2008. Right in the thick of things here. The Christmas holiday season. Got some interesting listener email to go through today. And then we're going to be talking about teen, teen, teen ministry. Uh, especially uh, Saddleback. Now, I know it just seems like I pick on those guys on Saddleback, and it's just because I have such high expectations for them. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, Josh Griffin, who's uh, one of the youth pastors in the, in the high school uh, youth ministry over at Saddleback Church, uh, on his blog today, kind of opened up a can of worms. I don't think he expected that. And um, we're going to talk about uh, what he wrote and kind of and I'm going to give some biblical critique. And the nice thing is, is that uh, I have his permission to, uh, you know, to give biblical critique on. I had an opportunity to talk to him and he's asked that, that the contents of that uh, conversation remain between the two of us. And I'm going to honor that. But uh, he's he's given me permission to. Uh, Biblically, you know, weigh in on this, and so which I think is a, is a great thing. I, you know, I've met Josh Griffin. I think he's a he's a great kid, and um, you know, something for him to keep in mind is that 15 years from now he's going to be the head pastor of Saddleback Church. He's the next Rick Warren. <laughs> well, he may not be, but he, he chances are very likely that you know, 15 years from now he's going to be the head pastor at some church on his own. And the fact that he works for Saddleback Church and uh, in the youth ministry department there, and he's literally one of the thought leaders as it pertains to youth ministry. The things that he says are, you know, really are being watched by a lot of people. You know, whether I like it or not, there's a lot of people who watch and listen to what I say. And whenever I say something stupid, you know, <laughs> people are sure to weigh in. No. It's no. true. It's no. true. I know. Can you believe? Apparently yesterday I completely offended everybody in the King James uh, – that reads the King James version of the Bible. I'll say some. Well, it depends on if you listen to this email. So before we get to uh, Josh Griffin and his stuff today, also tell into the show we're going to be listening to uh, Joel Osteen. <sighs> Wonderful uh, sermon that Joel Osteen preached. Such a feel-good and inspirational message called You Are an Extraordinary Person. <laughs> a Mr. Rogers sermon. That's right. It's a beautiful day in your neighborhood. Wouldn't you like to have your best life now? Won't you be my neighbor? All right. I mangled that. <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, yeah. Let's uh we should put that on my new Christmas album. <laughs> All right. Okay, so uh Tom writes and he doesn't tell me where he's from, but uh he says uh yeah, I made my way to FightingForTheFaith.com just in time to catch you guys ridiculing the King James Version of the Bible. Now, that's a little bit of an overstatement. I did point out the fact that the King James Version of the Bible, if you do a word search in a computerized Bible, it's got eight or nine instances of the word unicorn. Now, um, unicorns are mythical beasts, and um, along with fairies, gnomes, elves, and, you know, critters like that. And, um, and I... All I basically said is, is that the King James Version, in translating the Hebrew word Rechem, really didn't do all that great of a job as unicorn. They translated Rechem as unicorn. It should be wild ox. Okay, now that which you know, which by the way, wild ox is is, is that the plural of oxes? Ox as oxes? Oxen. Oxen. 
wild oxen. There we go. See, I knew there was something wrong there. Um, they're not, you know, they're they're actually real. They're not mythical. Okay, and so I don't personally think, based upon my understanding of Hebrew and um, biblical languages, that unicorns are actually biblical critters. And so, you know, so saying that I've ridiculed the King James Version of the Bible is is a little bit of an overstatement. I consider it to be a decent translation, a little rough to read uh, on my, you know, 21st century ears. Um, I never say thee and thou, um, especially, you know, when I'm addressing my wife or God, you know. Um, But anyway, so so it says, great. I don't imagine that you realize that between the King James Version and the New King James Version, you've ridiculed by proxy a vast number of people who, for various reasons and different degrees, regard the text of the King James Version to actually be the word of God. In fact, I would say 70 to 80% of Christians I know either use the King James Version or the New King Jer- Version, and I'm basically a charisma- in a basically charismatic community. So in essence, you ended up um, revealing that you are, one, ignorant of the King James Version text, which classically speaking would be to be ignorant of the biblical text. Hey, okay, let's, <clears throat> Tom, appreciate your passion. You, you obviously feel strongly about this issue, and I've had the opportunity to speak with a few people who were in the King James only uh, variety of Christians, and uh, I had this one gal who worked for me, and she spent many an hour trying to convince me that the King James version of the Bible is the only inspired translation of the Bible. And I basically said, listen, Sit down with me for a minute. Let's just do a little translation work. Open up a copy of the Greek New Testament, which I used to carry around with me, and I still do on my computer now, on my laptop, and just did a little just a little translation work. I said, Here, let's, let's work this out. Here's the text itself. Let me translate it. I'll show you from the lexicon what the words are and how this works out, and let's see if it comes out in King James Version English. And Shazam, it didn't. <laughs> you know... <laughs> You know, golly, there, folks, there's no such thing as an inspired translation. You know, it's not like God reached down from heaven and touched the pen of the person who translated the King James Bible. Okay, no, it, it, it's a decent translation. I don't believe it's based upon the best manuscript evidence, and I think there's good scholastic reason to believe that. Okay, but there's no such thing as an inspired translation of the Bible. Okay, every translation of the Bible has its its issues. It has its strengths and it has its weaknesses. For instance, when I'm translating, I've told you this before, especially in the Greek, not necessarily so much in the Hebrew, but um, when I'm translating a passage from the Greek New Testament, I check to see if I got it right by looking at the NASB. Okay which really does a, a really good job of, of getting really good, technical, precise uh, translation work. And if I'm way off from the NASB, I just know I've biffed it, okay? It's, it's it, take the eraser out, erase some things, and go back and roll up my sleeves and, you know, get back into it. And, you know, maybe I missed, you know, up the, the, the proper voice of, of the verb and, you know, in, you know, that I'm working on. It doesn't matter. But, um the NASB is as good as a translation as it is for technical reasons. Um, it's difficult to read, okay, precisely because it is um, it is very technical, technically correct. When you and when you'll find this out is is that folks, people in the first century, when they were speaking Koine Greek, 
they didn't have it there's they, they don't have a flavor for their language like we do for the English language the way we talk and the idioms we use are different and so what happens is when you're when you're translating from the Greek into the English sometimes you always run across these little thorny issues okay okay what does that phrase mean you know um for instance if I were to say to somebody you know somebody's got a leg up on the competition Okay, that could be misconstrued in another culture. What, is, what does he mean he has a leg up? I mean, I mean, the only time I've ever seen somebody have a leg up on somebody else is when a dog was using, a, you know, um, a fire hydrant. So they, they, they can think that's what that was referring to, but it's not. You know, it just, it might, just means you're higher up on the ladder. But see, that's, a, that's an American idiom that we use. And in another culture, in a different language, people go, what's this leg up business? How, how do I translate that? The same thing occurs in the Greek New Testament. And what's really funny is, is in the book of Matthew, not only is it written in Greek, but you have Hebrew idioms in the Greek language in, in the book of Matthew. So which creates all kinds of challenges when you're translating you know, from Greek into English. Okay, so here's the deal. There is no such thing as an inspired translation. Every translation has to weigh the pros and cons regarding do I want to be wooden and specific or do I want to be readable for somebody who's, who's actually you know, reading this in the English language. All right? So you know, and that's always that's a balancing act. It's a little bit of an art. Okay, and the nice thing is, is because I'm not coming out with my own translation, I don't have to worry about the art part of it. Uh, <laughs> I get to focus on just the the technical piece of it, which really appeals to my nerdiness anyway. <laughs> so, um, Tom, there is no such thing as an inspired translation, and I don't know any scholar. Maybe there are some out there. Somebody's going to email me and say, "Oh, there is one." I don't know any scholar who's going to basically say, "Oh no, what the Bible teaches that there's unicorns." And and if you don't believe you know, you you've if you would believe in unicorns if you believed in the inspired translation of of the King James Bible, folks, there's no such thing as unicorns. Okay, and if you believe in unicorns, just give me one fossil of a unicorn, please. Okay, I'm sorry, the King James version is just wrong in translating that word as unicorn. I saw one in a Simpsons episode once. Right, name was Gary. Gary? Yes, Gary the Unicorn. Gary the Unicorn. Yes. You watch The Simpsons? Yeah. All right. You know, this is not private confession here. This is actually pretty public. (laughs) I've watched a few episodes of The Simpsons myself. It's rather funny. Um, Anyway, Ned Flanders kind of kills me. Anyway, um, so here's the deal. Folks, if you're going to take it personally... Because I say the King James Version of the Bible gets it wrong in translating the word Rechem as, as, uh, as uh, unicorn, you've you got some other issues you need to deal with. It's not, it's not a personal slam against you. Okay, it's just basically saying, no, these scholars got it wrong. And, you know, I'm not sure why they translated it as unicorn, but that's not the best translation of that word. You know, and if you don't, if you don't agree with me, then give me a scholarly reason to believe that the word should be unicorn. <laughs> Send me the scholarly articles. Who is out there defending the biblical unicorns? In fact, I'm sure somebody's going to send me to a website where it. I, there probably is somebody out there. Save the biblical unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have saved the whales. They have saved the dolphins. You know, and you know, and have dolphin-free tuna nets. And someone that I'm sure there is somebody out there who has the save the biblical unicorns. And that there's they're basically they're claiming that there's a, co- a conspiracy among all the other translations of the Bible in English to suppress 
the existence of biblical unicorns. I've been on the internet way too long. I, if, if you've seen this website, send me the link. I'm not surprised if it exists. It might end up in the Museum of Idolatry, but anyway. So, Tom, I wasn't attacking the people who use the King James Bible, okay? We all have to be grown-ups here, okay? Grown-ups and mature in how we handle the biblical text, okay? So one of the good things to do when you're studying your Bible is to have a couple of good translations handy to see how different scholars handle different texts because not not everything translates really easily into the English. And so when you get to a you get to a passage that you reads a little awkward in one translation, pull out another good translation. New King James version is a perfectly good translation. King James version, again, it has its strengths and weaknesses, it's a decent translation. Okay, I I from time to time I find myself gravitating towards the way um, the King James Bible translates some passages because I think it gets a better feel for what um, for what the text says. But again, my standard is what does the Greek say, okay? And what is the, what's coming close to capturing what the Greek says in its flavor? That's that's really what we want to do. And so by having a couple of good translations that you can work from, you get a better feel for it, okay? So... By the way, I'm not recommending Rick Warren's approach where you start with your your conclusion in mind and then go find the translation that agrees with your position. You know, Rick needs to uh, do a lot better job of, of how he handles God's word. We talked about that yesterday on when we reviewed his The Purpose of Christmas book. You know, there's some good stuff in that book, and there's a lot of stuff I can say amen to. The problem is, is that, once again, Rick Warren really mangles God's word, and he's got to stop doing that. All right. Okay. Now, this is a good email. Not like the other one. The other one was a good email, I mean, it, I, but it, it, it's good news kind of sense. Um, you remember yesterday we were talking about uh, the fact that if the Christmas holiday wars are now upon us, that there's a big vast conspiracy to get rid of Christmas parades and people saying Merry Christmas and stuff. I mean, O'Reilly, O'Reilly on the on Fox News, on the O'Reilly Factor, O'Reilly has been sending out bumper stickers saying, I say Merry Christmas. You know, uh, good night. Okay, yeah, so what, what did I say yesterday? Basically, I said, listen, don't get all upset if Walmart, Macy's, your local government, and the feds don't want uh, to say the word Christmas. Who cares? It's your job as a Christian to carry that water, and don't get upset when they're not all excited about carrying that water for us. You know, we expect the government to preach the gospel? Yeah. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah, I know. That that doesn't that's not what they're there for, you know. <clears throat> anyway, so um a gentleman uh emailed me on Facebook. Now, I understand that by saying this that people are going to um be looking me up on Facebook and you can do that. In fact, if you send me a friend request on Facebook, uh, more than likely I am going to um to accept it. Why? Because I just want a lot of friends. <laughs> now, understand something that here, though. If you if you ask to become my friend, that you're my cyber friend, okay? And cyber friends don't exactly have the same privileges as my face to face friends. It's just you know, but it's it's a good way to communicate with me. Email me if you see me online. You can actually chat me on on Facebook. And you know what's funny though is if somebody sees me on there, I'll get like four or five chat windows going together, and it, it makes this like this pong sound. It, you know, whenever whenever somebody chats you, so I'll be sit, you know, I'll be sitting there. All of a sudden, it's like, <laughs> it's like I'm thinking, who's got the popcorn going in the microwave? You know. Anyway, so uh, Tim Brown writes, and he um, he's basically 
uh, sent me something that he sent to his local newspaper regarding this Christmas issue. And I thought it was really good, and I asked him for permission, for permission to read it on the air, and he gave me his blessing. And um, if he sends me a link to where I can uh, link to it, um, you know, where you don't have to go to Facebook to see it, because at this point, I, the only way I, I know to go to it is on Facebook. And if you're not on Facebook, you, I don't know, can you view things if you're not a Facebook member? I'm not a Facebook member. <sighs> you know, this doesn't make me sound like the best of Facebook <laughs> members either. All right. <clears throat> anyway, the name of his uh, piece is called Just Another Christmas. Okay, he says, and so this is uh, his name is uh, Tim Brown, and Tim writes. He says, "Here we go again, another Christmas. All the stores have their lights, the trees on display, all the toys are on the shelves, and the kids are lining up." And I think this was dated July fourth, two thousand eight. No, <laughs> isn't the, doesn't the Christmas stuff come out right after the fourth of July now? I think they're going to start coming out in two thousand nine. The Christmas display comes out after Easter. That's right. All right. Sorry, I digress. He says, um, this is the time of uh, year when when our commercialism comes into full bloom. And even the most atheistic of businessmen uh, and women cash in on a holiday that has its roots in something that happened in a manger 2,000 years ago, even as some of them fight against public expression of it in the courts. Now, that's a good point. You know, it's atheistic businessmen saying, hey, you know, I don't want to hear about Christmas parades and stuff like that, but I, I'll cash that check if I'm selling merchandise during the holidays. Just to, I thought that was a good point. He says, uh, he says, but is that is that all it is? Tinsel, lights, spending money on, on on Uncle Ed and hoping you get the same value in presents back so you at least break even. Do people do that? I'd imagine this spreadsheet kind of thing. You know, well, Uncle, you know, Uncle so and so, you know, sent me a gift that was worth fifteen bucks, and I gave him one that was worth twenty five. So he owes me ten. Is that how that works? <laughs> Man, so that that means I, I get to go to his house and he gets to barbecue a really good steak for me, right? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure I understand the, the, all the Christmas rules here. Okay. So he says, uh, thankfully, no, not at all. This is a this is the humanistic, secular, commercial Christmas, and in the end, it's as empty as the boxes and paper that we left on the floor after it's uh, after it's all over. So. Am I another Christian who's just going who's going to just say Jesus is the reason for the season? That seems to be our big, you know. You know what? You anti-Christmas people, Jesus is the reason for the season. And, you know, it boy, that's kind of lost its punch, hasn't it? And I think that's what he's writing against. He says he says no, that is just triteness and I don't want to insult you with that. Rather, let me give you why it was necessary for Jesus to come here in the first place. Now, Tim is doing a fine job of carrying the heavy water of the gospel. Listen to this. So does he start off with uh, you know telling you how much God loves you and has a purpose for your life and, and has just great expectations and, and things like that? No, he doesn't. Watch what he does. He says, he says, we all have broken God's law, the Ten Commandments. We've all told lies no matter how small and how long ago. Most of us have stolen something, and regardless of how small it was, that still makes us lying thieves. Tim, I wonder if this will get published. I mean, everyone's self-esteem is going to get crushed here. You're just not being positive. But he, he continues. He's, so he's called us all lying thieves. Can you believe that? Well, in my case, he's right. <laughs> How about you? Guilty. Yeah. Okay. So um, and he says that is only two of the Ten Commandments. Yet God says in his word that if we break even one commandment, we are gu- as guilty as 
one who has broken all of them. He's quoting James here. He's right. How many of us have been guilty of lust, which God calls adultery of the heart? We've all held hate in our hearts against someone for whatever reason, and God says that is the same as murder. And who hasn't blasphemed God by taking his holy name in vain? Need I go on? It's obvious that we are all guilty before God of breaking his law. This guy's a man after my own heart. Dude, this is awesome. Okay, so what is he doing? He's do he's he's being like John the Baptist. He's being like Jesus Christ. Because when Christ, Jesus would go into a town, according to the scriptures, it says that his shtick was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent from what? Um, sin. Sins. Yeah, sin. yeah. It's I know it sounds simple, but it's true. So here here um, here Tim in his submission to his local paper, in talking about Christmas, isn't just saying Jesus is the reason for the season. He's all lumped us now into the same boat as, we're all in the same boat, a sinking boat of sinners. Okay, and notice he's lit off the nuclear bomb of the law, so it's leveled everybody. Okay, good job, good law preaching here. Not, not, and he's not saying try harder, do better, scolding people now, 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 you know, slapping their wrists. You know, Jesus wants you to have the best for your life and you just got to try, you know, have a positive outlook and, you know, follow his example. That's not what he's doing. This is, this is just, this is John the Baptist law preaching. Booyah. This, this is manly. This is good stuff. All right. So he says, God is the holy, righteous and just judge that must punish sin. The bad news is that, uh, is that merely asking for forgiveness isn't going to help any more than asking a local judge to just forgive you if you were guilty of robbing a bank. And people are going, wait, 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 what? I thought God was merciful. Uh, let's continue. He says, there's a penalty that must be paid, and the judge that simply forgives a thief would rightly be considered unjust and rightly thrown from the bench. He's right. So the judge would only be right in sending that thief to prison for a very long time. And in, that, and in the case of the sinner, the destination is hell no so look at this he's he's called us all sinners nailed us all to the wall with the law and now he's pretty much said that we're all guilty of you know of sinning in such a way that god's gonna send us all to hell brave man good stuff all right he says but <laughs> there's that word see because what does but do it's a verbal eraser it erases the stuff before it so he's he's gonna erase the sin stuff how's he gonna do it well let's see what he does he says those are good um okay he says those are good words, aren't they? But God just God sent Jesus Christ, his one and only son, to come here and dwell among us. The judge of the universe took on human flesh. He took off his robe. He came to us as a child. The Bible says that he pitched his tent among us. Oh, yeah, no, that's, oh, that's good stuff here. That's, you know, no. <clears throat> he lived the sinless life that you and I could never live. He was nailed to a cross, suffered the wrath and indignity of human abuse and murder at the very human hands that he created. And he died. But even worse, he suffered the infinite wrath of his own father because he became our sin. This is good stuff. You're giddy. I just. But in a, in a manly way. Yes, this is awesome. All right. So if I saw this in my local paper, I'd be calling the paper going, praise the Lord. <laughs> I've just become a Pentecostal. This is great stuff. All right. He, he, so uh, so uh, even worse, okay, he, uh, Jesus became our sin. He cried, why have you forsaken me? Because God the Father, for the first time in eternity, could not look upon him because he became our sin. Yet three days later, he rose from the dead, showing that he had conquered death and proved that his sacrifice was was acceptable to the Father. Such is the love of God. It's how he has showed us his love. In turning, in turn, God calls 
all of us to turn from our sin, to repent, and put our faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross so long ago. You must put on the Lord Jesus Christ as a man would put on a parachute before jumping from a plane. Now, that's an interesting metaphor, because whether you want to or not, you will you will one day make the jump into eternity. Ten out of ten people die. You know, think you're a good person? And then he puts the visitneedgod.com. So... High marks and high praises to listener Tim Brown. Why? Because Tim here has taken God's law and the gospel, and he's put it into the context of the Christmas story. And it's not just a Jesus is the reason for the season or happy birthday, Jesus, those trite little theological bumper stickers. No, he's taken the law and manly in the same way that Christ did, the disciples did, that John the Baptist did, and even the prophets of old. Preach the law in a way to condemn the sins of the people who are listening and hearing or reading what he's what he's written. And he doesn't leave us there in our sin. He presents Jesus Christ as the only solution. Christ crucified for our sins as the solution to this problem. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? So, Tim, congratulations. High marks. You get an A on this uh, on this paper. Yeah, we'll be uh, expecting good things from you on the final when that comes up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. Okay. So before we get into uh, the issue with uh, Josh Griffin and uh, and the high school uh, ministry over at uh, Saddleback Church, and they're talking about um, and talking about stealing. Uh, real quick, I'm going to read a news story from. The uh, Christian Post, which requires me to pull out the uh, the news story update music. That, that's really important because we can't do a news story without the news story update music, right? Is, is that, yes. Yeah, because yeah. it, it makes me sound like a professional radio guy rather than a complete hack. But no one's fooled. Anyway, so here's our news story. Um, study uh, what teens are looking for learning in church. This is apparently a Barna study. Uh, what teens expect most when it comes to churches is to worship or make a connection with God. A new Barna study showed. This is, uh, f- you know, f- uh, this one goes way- a little bit back, back into 2007. Okay. But, you know, studies don't generally change all that much in a year's time. So here we go. Um, what teens expect most when it comes to churches is to worship or make a connection with God. A new Barna study showed 45% of American teens said that that was very important to them, and 42% seek to better understand what I believe, according to the study released Monday. Only 42% of teens want to have a better understanding of what they believe? That's less than half. Okay. Now, the question is, what do you do with studies like this? Okay, let me read some more details here. Um, Other important things they look for in a church include spending time with close friends. That's 34%. Getting encouraged or inspired. Getting encouraged or inspired. 34%. And volunteering to help others. 30%. Okay. Expectations teens prioritize as less important were learning about prayer. 26%. Listening to religious teaching. Only 26% wanted to hear religious teaching. Participating in discussions regarding religion and faith. Uh, only 23% there. Uh, being mentored or coached in spiritual development, only 21%. Discovering the traditions of their faith, only 20%. Participating in a study class about the faith, uh, 19%. And studying the Bible, 18%. Okay. 
you kind of get the flavor here. So the, Barna conducted a study that showed us what teens want and expect from church. Okay. What do you do with a study like this? Biblically, you ignore it. Okay. Biblically, you're called to ignore it. Why? We don't make decisions in the church about what's important based upon sticking our finger into the wind to seeing which way the winds are blowing and then capitulating to it. To give in to the teens who only want 18% Bible study? Um, you know, 26% want to listen to religious teaching? If we were to listen to them and say, well, see, they, they don't want this, so therefore we got to give them what they want, that's the exact wrong way of doing things. Okay, in the Bible, you don't make a decision based upon what a study says. You know, let's lick your finger, stick it into the wind, and go, oh, the winds are blowing this way, so we're going to go this way now. And then when the winds change and go the other way, we go another way now. And then when, no, 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 no. Okay, last time I checked, in my house, um, my wife makes some wonderful meals, some beautiful meals. I mean, Mrs. Roseboro is an amazing cook, okay, and my body shows it, okay. Um, now, with dinner, uh, our dinner usually consists of a meat portion, a starch portion, um, some kind of a veg- cooked vegetable, and a salad, Okay, we get salad every night. Now, my wife's salads are killer. They're amazing salads. Now, see, the problem is I eat too much of the starch portion and not enough of the salad portion. Okay, but Mrs. Roseboro's very insistent with my young children, especially one in particular, my middle child, Christina. She doesn't like salad. Okay, but my wife doesn't say, oh, you know, we've conducted a survey among the three Roseboro children, and we've learned that one-third of them don't like salad. You know, and so what we're going to do is we're not going to have salad anymore. You know, what my wife says to Christina, eat your salad. And then what happens is, is that Christina will put just like one or two leaves on her plate. And my wife will look at that and go, Mm-mm, nope, more. Oh, mom, mom, come on. No more. Ugh. And what happens is every night Christina has salad. Why? Because it's good for her. Right. So if we were to make decisions about how we did youth ministry based upon the fact that only 18 percent of them are interested in studying the Bible. What would happen in youth ministry? I mean, you can grow a huge youth ministry program if you just ignored Bible teaching and gave them what they want. Right. Who did Jesus call? Twelve disciples. Disciples. Yeah. Men. Men. Yeah. And then he had a, a youth ministry program after that. He did not. Oh. Okay. Now, now, John, you're being negative here. You know, you got to be careful. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so I just wanted to set you know to read this to you just to kind of give you an idea of you know some of the mindset that goes on in youth ministry. Now, I am not a expert on youth ministry. I don't claim to be, and I don't play one on television. <laughs> Which is important to know. But uh, when we come back, we're going to take a look at something that Josh Griffin, who was the uh, one of the high school uh, pastors over at, at uh, Saddleback Church, and what he had to say about teen stealing today and the conversation that ensued. And, of course, Roseboro being the verbose person that he is, is going to weigh in. Okay, I'm going to weigh in with what I consider to be a biblical critique of, of what's going on here and what's the right way for us Christians to be addressing this issue. So um, we're going to take our first break. And if you'd like to email me so far and let me know how uh, the unicorns in the Bible need to be defended against those who are trying to rub them out, do so. Talk back at fighting for the faith. I, I, I got to look at my email. I'm sure there's a unicorn email in there already. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Uh, we'll be right back. 
Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay. Now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Quando. We use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, The mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are hand-picked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, a stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. All right, we're back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. It's my job. What do we do here? This this show is all about biblical discernment. We take the things that are being said out there and compare them to the Word of God. 
to see if what is being said is true biblical Christianity or or if it's just the truth or if it's a lie or if it's something that's aberrant or something that's heretical. There's a there's kind of a spectrum of, you know, when it comes to false teaching. It can be something can be just an error, it can be aberrant or it can go all the way over to the heresy uh, category that would be when somebody denies one of the cardinal and central teachings of the of the of the Bible. You know, in that case, we say, you know, that person's no longer our brother in Christ; he's become something else. And which, by the way, is kind of weird. Richard Mao, uh, Mu Mao, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. He's the president of Fuller Theological Seminary. You know, he's on record as basically saying that there's a, a Mormon apologist out there who 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 is saved because he believes in Jesus Christ. Same. Th- yeah, Joel Osteen said the same thing. I'm sorry, Mormons believe in a different Jesus. Just because they use the word Jesus doesn't mean that they're referring to the biblical one. Okay, and this is an important thing. So what we do is we look at definitions. The definitions are very important. If somebody says Jesus, Holy Spirit, the Bible, what do they mean? Okay, you can't just assume that just because somebody uses the same words that you do that they have the same meaning. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus Christ, God the Son, the only begotten Son of God, who is the second person of the Holy Trinity, and uh, and God is a Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's not one. There's not three gods, but there's one God. And Jesus Christ is God the Son, who was incarnate, came to Earth in human flesh. You know, you can if you're if really bad Spanish would be uh, Dios con carne, God with meat. Okay, that doesn't sound right, but uh, you get the idea. Okay, that's who we say. Now, the Mormons, when they talk about Jesus, who are they talking about? They believe that that Jesus is the firstborn son of Elohim and that Jesus is not the creator or not that he's he's uniquely God, but that he's the firstborn son of Elohim, born to one of uh, Elohim's many spirit wives on the planet Kolob, and that Jesus' younger brother is Lucifer. Okay, so you know we're not talking about the same Jesus here. It's something completely different. Like cardinals. Cardinals? Well, well are you a cardinal fan? Well, is that baseball or, or football? Oh, yeah, good point. You know, I'm not much of a sports guy. Not just enough. You know, I like baseball. Football, not not particularly care for. But I, I funny enough, I'm going to be using a football metaphor today. <laughs> Yeah, go figure. All right, so what do we do? Is we compare what people are saying and compare it to the Word of God and ask the question, is this biblical Christianity? That's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. So today on uh, the uh, More Than Dodgeball website, uh, which is the blog, the personal blog of Josh Griffin, who is one of the high school youth pastors at Saddleback Church in, in Lake Forest, California. I've had the opportunity of meeting Josh again. He's a nice kid. He's a great, he's a nice kid. And, I, you know, and today I talked with him. And he, again, he's just a, he's a, He's just a, he's a nice guy, and he's not pretentious. He really means well. He's one of the thought leaders when it comes to national youth ministry stuff. You know, you know when you, you you see the people who you know come to him with uh, questions, and the you know, you know people look to him. He's a leader, and so uh, on his website today, he he has a, a post called "Teen Stealing." Okay, now the the question is whether or not he's going to modify this this blog post. But as of the time we went on the air, this is what it said. And I know what he means, but we'll work it out. He says, he says, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with someone about possibly teaching a message on stealing. Okay, okay, all right, that seems like a decent thing for a Christian pastor to do. And here's the deal, folks. I don't care if he's a youth pastor or a pastor. He's a pastor, right? Okay, so we're, we're going to basically, you know, he gets lumped in with pastors, you know, youth or otherwise, for the sake of today's discussion. So he says he was, a couple weeks ago, he was talking with someone about possibly teaching a message on stealing. 
at first it didn't seem to be something that we should address to the whole ministry. And to which I'm going, hmm? You did teaching about stealing didn't seem like something you should address to the whole ministry? He says, but we've seen indicators crop up more and more. And this is happening with the students that we are reaching. So he, he links to a, a, a news story which has the results of a survey which found that 30% or more of, of teenagers are stealing. Okay? And I don't even I don't know if that, that includes, you know, internet downloads of free music and things like that, but 30 plus percent of teenagers today in America are actually stealing. One third of them steal. And so he asked the question, have you ever taught on it aside from a mention in another talk? And he throws it out to people because he's got like thousands of youth workers around the country and, you know, and who read his blog. Okay. Now, I don't think Josh expected this to create a little bit of a firestorm, but it did. It created this one. This one's gotten some, some people's attention and rightfully so. Cause some, here's the deal. Sometimes when you head down the road of innovation, okay, you make decisions regarding innovation, the things you're innovating, you don't always see the little important things along the way that might get overlooked in favor of innovation. Okay. Now to my great football metaphor, right? Okay. Vince Lombardi. Okay. You know, as now I'm going to mess this story up and I know there's football guys out there who are going to send me, send me emails that are going to correct all of the historical facts regarding this. Vince Lombardi is a coach. He believed that he was more than a coach. He believed he was a teacher and uh, the way he worked on help on how he would coach his teams to success was by focusing them on the basics. Rather than having a football team that would go out and have these elaborate playbooks with the, you know, the four, five lateral flea flicker pass with the Statue of Liberty, you know, Hail Mary at the end of it. Okay. He wasn't into that type of innovation. He was into the basics. And what's his famous quote? Gentlemen, this is a football. Okay. That's Vincent Lombardi. Now, Mike Sosha. Now, you know about this guy. Mike Sosha. You know, I remember a few years ago when the, when the Angels won the World Series, and they were talking about Mike Sosha's coaching philosophy, and he really believed that the, the secret to their success is that he focused his team on hitting singles, not hitting home runs. The basics, right? Same thing here. Josh and, and uh, the guys at Saddleback Church, they excel in um, innovation, I don't think they excel in the basics. Okay. And if I, as an outside observer and somebody who lurks and reads their stuff and watches what they're doing, they're very heavy on, you know, how to reach the teens and being relevant and, you know, in today's culture and multimedia and how do you hold the attention of this person and, you know, and, uh, but in, in their focus on innovation, I think a lot of youth ministers, not just, you know, the guys at Saddleback, I think that a lot of youth ministers have lost fat, sight of the fact of, um, they need to focus on the on the basics. If I could coach them, I would say, gentlemen, this is a Bible. Okay, that's what I would say. Gentlemen, this is a Bible. And um, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit of this. So that was Josh's initial thing. He says, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to someone about possibly teaching a message on stealing. At first, it didn't seem to be something that we should address to the whole ministry, but we've seen indicators to crop up. Now, just a couple of quick things. Really, um, okay, um, if you were preaching the whole counsel of God's word, Stealing comes up more than once in the Bible. It's the seventh commandment in the Ten Commandments. 
Okay, if you were pe- preaching and teaching the basics of the Christian faith, then stealing would be touched on all the time, right? And uh, in the Lutheran Church, we use the small catechism with our youth, and there's a reason why we want our kids to be experts in the basic, core, central teachings and doctrines of the Christian faith. Okay, gentlemen, this is a Bible. Okay, or gentle women, because there's women in it. You know, yeah, there, yeah, there's there's female youth. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> I'm not discriminating here. So, but what what I think is also interesting is, is that he realized that this is something that should be addressed because of a study. When did studies, yeah, okay. Rob Bell has a book that came out, okay, about God wanting to save Christians. And apparently the book is about, you know, basically the way the book is billed is that, you know, he talks about the millions of homeless people that there are out there. And what percentage of, you know, people are homeless or live in poverty. And he compares that to a, another number. And the other number has to do with uh, the the amount of money that churches spend on buildings and and infrastructure and, you know, and the millions that they spend. And then basically the story is about the difference between those two numbers, right? Okay. I throw this out here because I'm trying to be relevant. Okay. Anyway, here's the deal. Okay. There is a number that you can come up with that that'll tell you how what percentage of youth are stealing. Okay, thirty percent of them, thirty plus percent of youth are stealing. There's another number that you can come up with that would tell you what percentage of youth are engaging in um, premarital sex. Okay, so you you know you could say that out of a hundred percent, maybe forty seven percent. I don't know what the number is nowadays. I'll just throw something out. Okay, so you can say this percentage of, of teens are sleeping together. Okay. There's another number that you can come up with. How many teens, uh, are, you know, are chronic liars? There's another percentage. Okay. And then you can you can say that how you know uh, how many of them are talking back to their parents? You know, are rebellious? You know, you can come up with another figure like that. Okay. There's all different ways that you can take a group of teens and slice and dice them sociologically. You can slice and dice them based upon their predominant sins or the sins that they're engaging in. Okay. I don't find the, that information to be helpful at all. Okay, why? Because the bigger number that you have to focus in on is 100% of all teenagers are sinners. 100% of them are sinners. And the biblical mandate for a pastor, regardless of whether he's a youth pastor or a adult pastor or a, a pastor who you know goes out and and claims that his special preaching is to, you know, left-footed, right-handed midgets who are over the age of 55 and wear cowboy hats, okay? we got to stop with dissecting everybody into all these little groups, okay? This is kind of a purpose-driven way of looking at things, by the way, is this dissecting of, of people. So what happens is is that you got people who are ministering to, you know, one, you know we, we, we minister and reach out to a segment of the population that is, white that is affluent that lives in in orange county drives this particular thing and fits this particular profile okay and you can go and minister to people who are who are of a different ethnic persuasion that are on this socioeconomic scale who have this particular thing we got cowboy church we've got goth we got the there was a church over the weekend that got press in pennsylvania because they had a goth liturgy okay um you know, so you can you can you can slice and dice people based upon their musical flavors, their political bents. It, it, we got to stop this. One hundred percent of all humanity is sinners. 
Okay. Pastors are pre- are called to preach the full counsel of the word of God. Now, I think that that uh, that Josh here was trying to raise awareness of the teen stealing problem in his blog post. I mean, that's you know, I think that's really what he was up to. Okay. Now, what's interesting is some of the comments that came in. That, you know, the, the comments that ensued as a result of this blog post—they're kind of telling too. Um, uh, <laughs> here we go. Let me read some of these. Andy writes. He says, "Well, I try to hit on cheating every now and then. I stress that cheating is stealing and lying. Steal someone else's answer and lie to make it look like you studied. Sixty-four percent have cheated. Wonder if that's any different in the church." Okay. Okay. Listen to these answers. They tell you something. Okay, so uh, Luke writes, he says, crazy man, I was thinking about doing the same thing, speaking about stealing and cheating. I was thinking about it. You know, I thinking, you know. After I read this article yesterday, I think you're right, and it's it's bigger than we think. Here's the article for the reference, and he quotes a USA Today study regarding uh, dishonesty and cheating. Okay. Um, uh, Cassie writes, he says, uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if this is a guy or a girl. Cassie, C-A-S-E-Y. Is that a guy's spelling or a girl's spelling? I think, it, I think it's a girl's. I'll go with that. Cassie, she writes, see, I can't you know, can't tell sometimes. He says, I don't think that the stat is any different in the church, at least not in my church. Listen to this. Our kids not only do it, but celebrate and brag about it. Cassie's saying that the kids at her church not only steal, but they celebrate and brag about their stealing. They have no concept of it being wrong, especially because everyone else is doing it. She's talking about kids in the church. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, they have no concept of it being wrong. In church, they have no concept of it being wrong. Why not? Okay, I don't know if they would uh, all cheat on tests, but sharing homework is like eating breakfast for them. How do we address it in a way that is inspiring to them and not law-oriented? So Cassie wants to address this in a way that's not law-oriented. Really? Okay. It's like eating popcorn without butter. Doesn't even sound right. Okay. Melissa writes. She says, she says, I deal with it too with our teens. I try to talk, uh, talk about it a few times a year, but yeah, I'm not surprised at all by the study. As Cassie's pointed out, our kids don't think that there's much wrong with it enough that we would, we won't talk about it from in front of me, although their whispers are loud. However, in a setting, when we discuss it as a group, uh, as a lesson, they're surprisingly honest. The stealing, lying and cheating is a constant struggle for me to teach them with every group that we have come through cheating on tests, lying on lying to parents or whoever, stealing everything from T-shirts to video games to music online. I think regardless of uh, whether you think it affects a lot of your students or a small portion, it's probably worth a talk for sure. They're de- <laughs> they- well, I'm glad to hear they think that talking about stealing is a good idea as a pastor. Okay. <laughs> Daryl writes, and, and I checked out his website. He's, got, he's, a, he's a, one of the youth pastors in, for a youth group in Alaska. And he says, well, I never really thought about teaching on stealing specifically, but I may need to look into it. (laughs) Okay. So, all right. What's going on here? What's wrong with this? Okay. Well, again, gentlemen, this is a Bible. You know, we've got to go back to basics. Okay, something's seriously gotten wrong here in the Christian church. And I would say it's indicative. It's, it's very well seen in 
youth ministries, but it's not limited to those because here's what happens. Remember I said Josh Griffin one day is going to be the head pastor of Saddleback Church. He's the next Rick Warren. Now, I may be wrong there, but you get my point. One of these youth pastor guys is going to end up becoming the head of Saddleback Church someday. And that's what happens. I see it over and over and over again. These youth pastor guys are the ones who are going out and planting churches or they're taking positions in in established churches. And what do they bring with them? They bring with them their youth ministry mentality and methods. And folks, there's something wrong if uh, stealing is not really on their radar. And they think maybe it's a good idea to talk about that. Okay, why? Well, let me give you a biblical answer for it. Okay, because so, you know, because Rose Bro is just waxing eloquently on his opinions here, and it's best if we actually get some some biblical basis for us. First of all, let me read to you what um, the Apostle Luke wrote regarding what Jesus said before he was taken up to heaven. By the way, um, in the Gospel of Luke, there's a, there's a cross reference passage to the um, to the Great Commission. And um, when I met with Rick Warren face-to-face, this was one of the passages I brought up. Because one of my critiques of Rick Warren is that he doesn't preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He's really good on the repentance part without saying the word repentance. He you know, preaches for life change. But what's missing many times is a clear definitive proclamation of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. Okay, but listen to this. So Jesus in Luke 24 says this. He says, when he said that to them, this is 2444, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, not in the name of Buddha or any other person, but in Christ's name, to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Okay? So Jesus says, the Christian message, that the ones that the disciples carried, is the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Okay? Now this is important. Okay? If you're going to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins... If you're going to preach repentance, that means it requires you, regardless of what Cassie wants, to preach the law. Inspiring somebody to do the right thing doesn't lead to repentance. Okay? Repentance requires that you preach the law. Remember, from Mount Sinai, God thunders, thou shalt not steal. Seventh commandment, by the way. Okay? And... I don't know. God wasn't really all that interested in being inspiring at that point, was he? I don't think so. <sighs> so much so that I think I better pull that passage out. Okay, we're going to go to uh, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Pay close attention to this passage here. Um, if you want to uh, get a flavor for what was going on, okay, Acts chapter, Exodus chapter 20, verse 18 says this. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sounds of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. Okay, so I, I, I just want, I want to set the stage here. We'll go back to the beginning of Exodus, okay? In Exodus, God gives us the Ten Commandments. And while this is going on, the children of Israel are at the base of Mount Sinai, which has got fire and smoke and thunder and peelings and earthquakes and lightning and... This was a scary scene, okay? And listen carefully, okay? If you're going to preach the law, you got... Let's find out how inspiring God was here. 
God said, Exodus 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, okay, he, God didn't say, well, I want you to be inspired. I'm really worried about your self-esteem and I want you to not engage in stinking thinking and you want, you want you to f- feel good about yourself. No, he didn't say that. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. None. Okay, remember, smoke, thunder, lightning, fire. Okay, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God and I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the father's of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's what's going on here. Okay. This wasn't God saying in this, in the, in a fluffy bunny voice, (laughs) this was being thundered from Sinai. Verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain for the Lord, your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Right. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath day to the Lord, your God. And on it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And what do we hear? I don't know. I wonder if I have any lightning in my uh, in my bag of electronic tricks here. I think those are good sound effects. You think those are? Yeah. 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 yeah I'm doing okay with those. Yeah. All right. So. The homemade thunder and lightning is working. All right, we continue. <clears throat> Honor your father and mother that you that your days may be long and in the land and the Lord your God has given you. <laughs> you shall not murder. <laughs> you shall not commit adultery. <laughs> you shall not steal. <laughs> you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay, <laughs> are these positive, inspiring? No. So how is it that you can, as a Christian, try to figure out a way that you cannot do this in a law way? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that, or his unicorn or anything that is your neighbor's. I had to just throw that in there. Sorry. And, uh, and, and listen to this. And when all the people saw the thunder, uh, when all the people saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. God didn't do it. He didn't. He couldn't pull off an inspiring sermon here. Isn't he worried about their self-esteem? No. <laughs> John, you're just being negative. So we, apparently God doesn't give a hoot about the self-esteem of these poor little Israelites sitting at the base of Mount Sinai. Right? Okay. Folks, Christ has called us, Luke 24, 47, repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name of Jesus to all nations. Repentance requires us if we're going to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins, remember, repentance is only half the equation of the preaching. 
That requires us to preach the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You don't know that you need a Savior until you first know that you are a wretched, and I mean wretched, sinner. So if you're going to, if, folks, if you're going to be a pastor, it requires you to proclaim the truth regarding sins and to not hold back and to not worry about being inspiring. God didn't give a lick about being inspiring when he said, thou shalt not steal. If you're going to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins, as Christ has said to his church to do so, that requires you to preach the law, not inspiring little pithy sermons to inspire somebody to do the right thing and, and live in a way that pleases and honors God. No, the problem is they don't live in a way that pleases and honors God. I don't care if 30% of students are stealing. 100% of them are sinners. <laughs> 100%. And 10 out of 10 of these kids are going to die someday. We have to preach and proclaim the truth. Okay? And it doesn't matter. I know the story doesn't change. That's the thing. We don't get Bible 2.0. We don't get constant updates to the Bible, you know, through our internet connection with heaven. You know, oh, we've got some new verses for you. No, we've got a closed canon, okay? And the job of the pastor is to preach all of it. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about the Apostle Paul and what he said to the, uh, to the people, to the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 when we get back from this break. But if you would like to email me and let me know that I'm just completely whacked that no i can't preach the law to to teenagers because it'll drive them away in droves and that somehow i'll hurt their self-esteem and they'll leave the church and never come back folks are already doing that all the studies show that when the when the teens leave high school they're graduating from god so this isn't working this this inspirational not touching on sin and making them feel good and motivating them and giving them what they want this approach doesn't work they're already leaving the church and not coming back we need to get back to doing what Christ has called us to do and feed them their vegetables, whether they want vegetables or salad or not. Anyway, you can uh, email me, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. And I did get a unicorn email. I looked. Well, you know, when you referenced that, you know, we were all thinking it. Yeah, I know. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Almighty, 
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. of a uh, little think piece, little discussion, little uh, conversation. What sparked the conversation is uh, something that uh, the youth pastor for the high school ministries over at uh, Saddleback wrote regarding teens and the problem that they have stealing. He was uh, cons- he's actually thinking about actually doing a message on uh, stealing. Hey, uh, folks, um, Vince Lombardi, this is a football, Chris Roseborough, this is a Bible. We got to get back to basics. The, the, The job of a pastor is to preach the word, okay? Whether he's a youth pastor or not, innovation is not nearly as important as fidelity to proclaiming the entire counsel of the word of God. That means preaching the law to convict sinners of their sin. Because even though 30% of all teenagers might be stealing, 100% of them are sinners going to hell without a Savior, Jesus Christ. 100%. So, anyway, let me remind you what the biblical standard is. This is uh, the Apostle Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy. Yeah, he was a young guy. He wasn't even a youth pastor. He was a he was you know, he was a young guy who was a pastor of a of a congregation. Paul writes to young Timothy, "I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season." That, that little in-season, out-of-season bit basically means there's going to be times when preaching God's word is actually in vogue. Okay? That day is not today, folks. We're in one... You know, remember the old uh, cartoons, uh, you know, the Daffy Duck and stuff like that? Your rabbit season, duck season? Okay, folks, it's not Bible season right now. Bible season is long past. Okay? It, you don't wait around for Bible season to come back again and for Jar- George Barna to declare in one of his latest surveys, hey, guess what? Preaching the Bible is now back in season. You can do it again. Again, what did I say you do with these studies? 
who can, you, real leadership never makes decision based upon a study or a survey. Real leadership makes uh, makes decisions based upon what is right, what is wrong, and what what does duty call somebody to do. In season and out of season, Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. It doesn't say inspire. That's missing from this passage. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, and I would add into there, and now is, when people will not endure sound teaching. Not sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into the myths. All Christian pastors are called by Christ to preach the word and to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Innovation, not important. What's important is fidelity to preaching God's word in season and out of season. Okay, let me give you another example. Do you think Paul practiced what he preached here, by the way? Yeah, me too. In fact, I'll prove it. Acts chapter 20. Okay, Acts chapter 20. Now, just so you know, let me give you a little bit of historical context for this passage. Paul has just finished up one of his missionary journeys, and he's heading back to Jerusalem. Okay, He, he wants to be there by the time of Pentecost. And uh, this is the uh, this when he gets to Jerusalem. This is when he's arrested, okay, by the mob there in, in, at the temple. But prior to that, he's on his way back to Jerusalem. You know, sailing from from uh, port to port, and and they uh, and they set sail to Ephesus. And when so, what you're going to read is what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. Remember, the church in Ephesus is one of the churches where Paul spent a lot of time. In fact, Paul spent a year, according to the book of Acts, preaching in the hall of Tyrannus about Christ and him crucified for a year. Okay, so Paul knows the Ephesian church really well. So we pick up the story at Acts chapter 20, verse 17. I'll point out the highlights along the way. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them. So this is Paul speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. These would be the Judaizers who were basically calling into question his apostleship. He says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Look at that. Paul says that he preached repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds like he actually heard in the words of the Lord from uh, Luke chapter 24 there. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Okay? But I did not. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. 
For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now that's, listen to what he just said there. He says that he is innocent of their blood. Uh, what? What does he mean by that? I mean, we think of, you know, somebody, you know, somebody's got blood on their hands. Many times we think that, you know, somebody is limited to having blood on their hands to, you know, if they murder somebody, you know, oh, their the blood, the, that person's blood is on their hands. Or if they do something that leads to somebody's death, right? Or downfall. Paul is saying that he doesn't have their blood on, he's innocent of their blood because he did not shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. There's a negative way to interpret this verse. Not very inspiring, too. You Christian pastors and teachers, that regardless of whether you're a youth minister or not, if you shrink from preaching the whole counsel of the word of God, repentance, and faith in Jesus Christ, then you have blood on your hands. That's the negative way to run this passage. And folks, that's a valid interpretation. So what does Paul say? He says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all you, all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. For I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you, God, uh, commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So Paul commends him to God and to God's word, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said is more blessed to give than to receive. Serious business there. Paul, I mean, going to the point of saying that he's innocent of their blood because he preached to them the whole counsel of God's word and he entrusts them to God and to God's word for building them up and protecting them from the wolves that he says are going to come. Okay, folks, Josh and you guys down at Saddleback, listen, preaching against stealing is not optional. It's not something that even should be discussed as something that should we you think we should address this issue? Well, we, there's a survey that says that it's a problem and I didn't realize it was such a big issue. It, this wouldn't even be a problem if you were committed to from the beginning as a ministry philosophy, the job of a pastor is to preach the entire counsel of the word of God for repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. This wouldn't be an issue. And the fact that Josh has been raising awareness of, the, of this problem within youth ministries shows us that there's a lot of youth ministers out there that are failing to do their job. And I hate to put it this way, but I'm using Paul's terms. The blood of those teenagers is on their hands because they're not preaching the full counsel of the word of God to them. It's shocking when you have a youth pastor say, you know, I've never thought about preaching about stealing. Maybe I'll look into it. 
It's a serious problem. Folks, we got to get back to the basics. Quit with this innovation stuff. Focus primarily on preaching God's word and giving people the full counsel of the word of God. Yes, you can have pizza parties. Yes, you can play kill ball. Yes, you can play dodgeball. Yes, you can have your lock-ins and all that fun stuff that goes along with, with really with some of the perks of a youth ministry. But when the perks and innovation of a youth ministry become the primary driving force behind a youth ministry rather than God's word, then things have gotten out of kilter and the wrong things are being emphasized and the right things are being de-emphasized. The primary job of all pastors is to preach the word in season and out of season. That means the full counsel of the word of God, and you preach for repentance and the forgiveness of sins to both believers and unbelievers. I know that sounds limited. It sounds narrow. It doesn't even sound innovative. And Roseboro sounds like some kind of an old school pastor or preacher. I'm not a pastor. So what if I sound old school? Christianity is old school, isn't it? And the school doesn't change because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. The message of the scripture doesn't change. We are called to faithfully proclaim the entire counsel of the word of God and to pass the faith on to the, the next generation so that that next generation can faithfully pass on the faith to the next generation. The message doesn't change. The content of the message doesn't change. And if you're not preaching the full counsel of the word of God, pastors, then the blood of the parishioners in your church is on your hands. Plain and simple. But here's the good news. Even if you are a pastor who has failed at properly preaching God's word, you haven't given your your, your teens or the, your parishioners, the full counsel of the word of God. Even this sin, Christ can forgive. And he offers complete, full forgiveness for it because he died for that sin on the cross of Jesus Christ. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness and believe this good news for you and then get back to preaching the full counsel of the word of God. All right, there we go. Got to hear the gospel. We all need it, man. We all need it. Okay, we're going to spend the, the last part of today's program listening to the smiling one, Joel Osteen. Why? <laughs> because I'm a glutton for punishment. Couldn't pass this one up because it, talking about repentance and the forgiveness of sins, that seems to be our theme today. You know, from the email that we got from Tim Brown, you know, the article that he wrote, loved how he handled God's law and gave us the gospel, um, to the problems with pastors not preaching... <laughs> About stealing, you know, why? Because they're not they're not committed to uh, teaching the full counsel of the Word of God. Now we've got Joel Osteen. See if you uh, <clears throat> see if you hear anything about sin or repentance here. The, the name of the sermon is called "You Are an Extraordinary Person." Did you know that, John? You are an extraordinary person. You know, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough, and gosh darn, people like me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's we we dive into the middle of this uh, sermon from well not in the middle this is kind of the front end of it uh, you just because we got to get the full Joel Osteen experience this guy is the number he's got the largest church in America which means he probably has, well he does not in the world but the largest church in America what does that tell you about America anyway here we go here's Joel Osteen you are an extraordinary person or call one eight 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 five six seven sorry about that here we go. More than a conqueror today. 
Discover the champion in you. Discover the champion in you. I'm sad that I have that stupid ditty stuck in my head. And I, I can sing it off key just like the best of them. Well, God bless you. Always a joy to come into your homes. We love you. And we know God has great things in store for you. God rewards the people that seek after him. I know that's you or you wouldn't be watching or you wouldn't be here today. So bless you today. If you're ever in our area, come out and see us. I promise you'll, you, we'll, we'll make you feel right at home. But thanks for tuning in. I like to get started each week with something kind of funny. And you know these are not doctrinally correct. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> well, neither are his sermons. <laughs> Forget the jokes. I mean, the jokes are like the least offensive of the things that he preaches. Because his sermons are not doctrinally correct. At all. They're just to make us laugh. But I heard about this husband and wife. They were celebrating their 60th birthdays together. Suddenly an angel appeared and said God was going to grant them each one special request. They were so excited. The wife said, my request is that we'd be able to travel all over the world. And poof, when the smoke cleared, she had tickets in her hand. The husband hung his head in shame. He said, my request is that I'd be married to a woman 30 years younger than me. And poof, when the smoke cleared, he was 90 years old. (laughs) All right, hold up your Bible. Now here comes the Joel Osteen Creed. This is not like uh, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. This is the me-centered me, 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 I, 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 me, 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 Creed. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. (sighs) Nothing like a good me-centered... What was that passage I read in 2 Timothy? Oh, yeah. Time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. La La Land. Welcome to Joel Osteen's La La Land. It makes you feel good, but doctrinal biblical truth, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, mysteriously missing. But it doesn't matter. It makes you feel good about yourself. That's all that matters. It's inspiring, not law-based. Cassie would like this. I want to talk to you today about how you are an extraordinary person. We all face challenges. We all have obstacles to overcome. But if we can keep the right perspective, it'll help us to stay in faith. And one thing I've learned is average people have average problems. Ordinary people have ordinary challenges. But here's the key. You're not average. You're not ordinary. You are extraordinary. Has he done some kind of a... Did Barna come in and do a survey of all of his people that show up to uh, his church and discover that they were all extraordinary? Can you imagine Jesus preaching this? (laughs) The answer is no. Let's continue. God breathed his life into you. This means you can't expect average problems. You can't expect ordinary challenges. You are exceptional. And exceptional people face exceptional difficulties. Well, that ex- that explains why everything's so exceptionally hard right now. It's because I'm such an exceptional person. <laughs> oh, man. I can feel my self-esteem inflating. 
<sighs> Somebody get a pin, please. But the good news is we serve an exceptional God. And when God allows a problem in your life, he doesn't match it to the size you think you are. He matches it to the size of your destiny. <laughs> What's that mean? I have no idea. I've, I've never read that in the Bible before. I think he's making it up. Oh, man. Okay. God knows what you're capable of. He sees your potential. When you have an incredible problem, instead of being discouraged, you should be encouraged knowing that you're an incredible person and you have an incredible future. Well, you say, Joel, why are these people talking about me at work? Why are they trying to make me look bad? Well, because they think you're a doofus because you believe all this stuff. Yeah, can you believe that guy over there listens to all that Joel Osteen fluff and stuff? Good night. That man is ridiculous. Listen, they don't talk about average people. They don't talk about ordinary people. They talk about exceptional people. That's why they're talking about you. <laughs> this is the funniest thing I've heard in a long time. Man, this is just cheering me right up. Holy guacamole, man. <sighs> okay, let's continue. This sounds like a parent consoling his little child. How come How come they beat me up at school, Mommy? Well, it's because you're so extraordinary. <laughs> it's no big deal. Just shake it off and move forward. It comes with the territory. I had a reporter say to me last week, Joel, I've done all my research on you and I've got to tell you, you have an extraordinary amount of critics. I smiled and said, it's because I'm an extraordinary person. No, it's because you're extraordinarily wrong. Has he given us a single passage of scripture yet? No. No. Um, we're four minutes into this one. But I know more about him. You know. <laughs> See, this is this is... Denial is not just a river in Egypt. I'm telling you, man. What the reason why he has critics is because he doesn't preach God's word. And there's people out there saying, "Hey, wait a second! I just looked that up in my Bible, and what you said, Pastor Osteen, is wrong." And no, no, no. See, the reason why that person did that is because really, it's because Joel Osteen's really an extraordinary person. That's why he has an extraordinary amount of critics. It's just it shows just how extraordinary he is. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, how come every time I try to go forward, Joel, every time I try to pursue my dreams, I have major challenges. It's because you're a major person with a major future. It's because you're a major sinner who needs to repent and receive Christ's forgiveness. The world is screwed up because of our sin, not because of how extraordinary we are. Bizarro world, man. The enemy would leave you alone if you weren't a threat. He would... <laughs> the enemy <laughs> wouldn't bother you if you weren't headed for great things. You need to dig your heels in and say, I'm not going to be discouraged by these problems. It may be big, but it's not too big for me. I'm not going to go around complaining because somebody's talking about me. I'm not going to get upset because I'm struggling a little in my finances. I'm staying in faith, knowing that the enemy wouldn't fight me this hard if he didn't know God had something great in store. 
Wow, have we fallen through the looking glass? The time has come, my little friends, to talk of other things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. Kaloo, Kalei, come run away. We're cabbages and kings. This is crazy, man. This is a sermon? Yes, this is a sermon. Not group therapy. I, I think the... We're beyond group therapy at this point. I don't know what this is. This is just self-affirmation time. Pull out your pocket mirror and tell yourself you are an extraordinary person. And understand, the size of your problem is an indication of the size of your future. Okay. Verse, chapter and verse. It is anything here. This is, number one, the, the, the largest Christian church in America. And apparently I'm using the word Christian very loosely. If you have a big challenge, that means you have a big future. Don't go around complaining. Why did this happen to me? Why did my plant close down? Why did my loved one die? Why do I have this sickness? No, that obstacle is not there to defeat you. Okay, so I, I'm diagnosed with cancer. Let's just pretend for a second. I'm diagnosed with cancer. Doctor says it's terminal. That's a big challenge. Why am I facing this big challenge? Because I have a big future. Does this work? I have a big future in a box, six feet under the ground. <laughs> Positively affirm your way out of that one. It's there to promote you. If you'll stay in faith right past that difficulty, you'll see a new level of God's favor. This is what really, where does it say that chapter verse Bible, Bi hello Bible here. What was that Bible passage? I read, um, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, re exhort with complete patience for the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves. Joel Osteen who will suit their own passions. I, you can put that in there. It works. Turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into Osteen esque myths. This is myth. This, there's no Bible here. The Bible doesn't teach any of this. What happened to David? He would still be known as a shepherd boy if it were not for Goliath. He faced an extraordinary... Uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, Joel, David would be known as a shepherd boy if it were not for God. God. You, you heard of the guy in heaven, Jesus Christ, the big kahuna himself? The one who spoke the universe into existence in six days. The one who said, let there be light and there was light. God is the one who had the prophet Samuel anoint David as the king of Israel. And that happened before Goliath. So David would be known as a shepherd boy if it weren't for God. God chose David. Hmm. Ordinary problem. Goliath was three times his size. He was a skilled warrior. He was the leader of that army. Here David was a teenager. He didn't have any formal training. He had no equipment, no armor. In the natural, David didn't have a chance. What was God doing? That didn't seem to make any sense. But God wouldn't have presented David with that extraordinary challenge Unless he already knew that David was an extraordinary person. Oh, man. 
You know, how extraordinary was David? Premeditated murder, adultery. Um, God wouldn't even let him build the temple in Jerusalem because of all the blood that was on his hands. I thought he was a sinner. You're right, Chris. Okay, just, you know, just checking. <sighs> this is not how you read the Bible, by the way. Although, I gotta give Joel at least a style point for trying to bring the Bible into this completely twisted satanic message. No doubt David felt average. I'm sure he felt ordinary just taking care of his father's sheep. Nothing special about him. But when David heard Goliath taunting the people of Israel, something rose up on the inside that said, David, this is your time. This is your destiny. I believe at that moment, a seed of faith took root in his heart. Where does it say that in the... the, Folks, notice the important words there. I believe that at that moment, a seed of faith took root in David's heart. Well, that's fine and dandy, Pastor Osteen. And boy, I'm using the loosest term for pastor there. But can you back that up with a single shred of evidence from God's word? Because God doesn't call you to preach your opinions. He calls you to proclaim his word, to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And, uh, okay, so you... The answer to the question is there isn't a shred of evidence textually to support his opinion. And he began to realize he was not average. He was not ordinary. He could feel those seeds of greatness. Okay. I'm going to have to look up Goliath. We've got to do some reading here. Just, you know. <clears throat> so he's made the story about David and the seeds of greatness in uh, David, right? <sighs> okay, First Samuel chapter 17, 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on, on, the, uh, on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. This guy's really tall. It's like eight or nine feet tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and, and he was armed with a co- coat of mail and a weight of the of the coat was 5000 shekels of bronze and he had a he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel why have you come out to draw up for battle am i not a philistine and are not you the servants of Saul choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me and if he is able to fight with me and kill me then we will be your slaves but if you prevail but if i prevail against him and kill him then you shall be our slaves and serve us And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Apparently they had some major challenges here and they just didn't realize that they had a big future because of how big their challenges were. Right? 
I love this story, by the way. It's not about David. It's about God. It's about Christ. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years, and the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went uh, to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, the three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to his son, uh, David his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands and see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Okay, so basically David is being errand boy at this point. And remember, he's already been anointed king of Israel by Samuel. Why? Because God had had enough of Saul. Okay. Now Saul and they all, the men of Israel, were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Notice that David wasn't going, wow, I've got seeds of greatness inside of me. And I can just feel them growing at this point. It's time for me to face my destiny. What was he mad about? He was mad that this uh, Philistine was defying the armies of God. Right? <clears throat> well, let's see if there's anything about seeds of greatness being planted. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and your the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, before, uh, the same way. and the people answered him again as before. Now when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail him, because your servant will go down and will fight this Philistine. What makes him think that he can fight this Philistine? Is it because he has seeds of greatness inside of him? No, listen to this. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go down and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. 
for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and it took a lamb from the flock, and I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of the mouth, if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Who's he trusting in, himself or God? I'd say God. Yeah, me too. I think that's what the text says. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Doesn't make a darn bit of sense, does it? No. David didn't see great seeds of greatness in himself. He trusted in God. God had delivered him before. He's going to deliver him again. This is a story of God's deliverance. This is a, this story points us to Christ. Like all of the armies of Israel, we stand and Satan shakes his fist at us and says, come out and fight with me. Right? Yeah. And who is our champion? Christ himself. Christ himself who went and he died for our sins. And he defeated the devil by doing so. And all we could do is sit there and watch and vicariously receive that battle won for us this is pointing us to christ it's pointing us to god not to the seeds of greatness in david david his if you can call it even greatness the reason why it was so amazing is because he had faith faith not in himself his faith was pointed towards his savior jesus christ he knew he can trust him. And God had anointed him as the king of Israel. All right, we go back to Joel Osteen. Kind of a bummer going back after hearing that's a great story, by the way. I wonder if I should finish the story just for the sake of it, huh? Yeah, I don't want to leave you hanging. That's, that's, I'm a terrible storyteller if I left us off with, with that part. Okay, so Saul said, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, and he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. It's, you know, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to, David, said to David, Am I a dog that you come with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Now that's what I call faith. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. (laughs) When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and he put his armor in his tent. Amazing story of God's deliverance. Miraculous deliverance. God won the battle that day for Israel, did he not? Yes. And he did it through a boy who had only faith and a couple of stones. Not seeds of greatness. He had faith in his great God. <clears throat> Bummer. We've got to go back to Joel Osteen. Here we go. Let me back it up a little bit so we can hear him waxing eloquent about David wrongfully. Because now you've heard the story for yourself. Ordinary person. No doubt David felt average. I'm sure he felt ordinary just taking care of his father's sheep. Nothing special about him. But when David heard Goliath taunting the people of Israel, something rose up on the inside that said, David, this is your time. This is your destiny. We just read the text. It wasn't about David and his time and his destiny. It was about God. I believe at that moment, a seed of faith took root in his heart. And he began to realize he was not average. He was not ordinary. He could feel those seeds of greatness. His mind told him, David, you're crazy. You're never going to defeat this man. No, it never said that. He said, God is going to kill you. (laughs) He, He had a great God that he had faith in. And his great God was going to deliver him. That's what he said. Joel Osteen is mangling God's word and focusing it on David as if somehow that's a story about you. The story's not about you. It's about Christ. It's about God and what God did that day. And David saw his great God and knew that his great God would deliver him even in this absurd circumstance. And God did. And God delivers you and me, even in this absurd circumstance. We are all sinners by nature. Every single one of us is guilty of sinning against God. And when we look into the mirror of God's law, what do we see? Sinner. And we see Satan pointing his bony finger at us and saying, you're guilty and you're going to hell. I'm going to drag your carcass to hell. And Christ, our champion, says, no. 
I have defeated sin, death, and the devil by dying for your sins. They are atoned for. God's wrath is propitiated. Trust and have faith in me. I'll save you from somebody greater than Goliath. I will save you from Satan and from death itself. How can Joel miss all of that? You're going to get out there and look like a fool. But in his heart, he could hear the voice of faith saying, Greater is he that's in me than he that's coming against me. I am well able to fulfill my destiny. I may not see a way, but I know my God can make a way. He went out and defeated the giant. Do you realize? God defeated the giant. What made David king? What promoted him? It was Goliath. The extraordinary problem? No, he was already anointed as king of Israel before this. It wasn't Goliath that made him king. It was God's anointing. Brought out the extraordinary person. And some of you today, you're facing situations that seem impossible. You don't see how it could work out. But I believe even right now, a seed of faith is rising in your heart. Something on the inside. Uh-huh. That invisible, non-spoken about in Scripture, seed of faith. that supposedly rise, rose up in David's heart is now rising up in you. You might want to get some weed killer. <laughs> Serious. Because if this particular seed of faith takes root in you, the one that Joel's preaching about, it's not a it's not a healthy plant. This is one that'll choke out real faith. Get the weed killer. Get the weed be gone. Start spraying right now. Quick kill it. God is saying, I am bigger than this problem. I was created to overcome. I was destined to live in victory. Now you got to do like David and let that seed take root. Believe. This invisible seed that doesn't exist in the text, now he's saying we have to let it take root? Serious, folks, get the weed killer. Get the weed whacker. Get, get a garden trowel, whatever. Find the seed and dig it out and don't let it grow. It's a weed. Believe that you can overcome every obstacle. Believe that you're a person of destiny. Stir up the fire that God's put on the inside. You can't sit back and be passive and kind of complain, talk about how bad it is, how you'll never rise any higher. No, that obstacle may look like a Goliath. It may look impossible, but God wouldn't have allowed it if he didn't already know you could overcome it. Quit looking. That's called allegorization of the scripture. This is allegorical. He's not really exegeting the passage. He's allegorizing it. Not a valid way of doing scripture, by the way. Looking at your difficulties as obstacles that are going to hold you back and start looking at them as opportunities that are going to push you forward. Understand, incredible people will face incredible challenges, but the good news is you're going to see incredible victories. Outstanding people. No, the good news is Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. People will have outstanding problems, but let me declare it. You're going to see outstanding promotion. Extraordinary people will have extraordinary critics, but you're going to have extraordinary vindication. I've learned this. God doesn't allow big challenges to face small people. You may be facing something big today. Seems like it's over your head. You could easily be overwhelmed. No, it feels like your head is growing, you know, full of hot air. To feel that pride puffing up inside of you. Wow, I'm an extraordinary person. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? You are of your father, the devil. He's a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. 
this is not Christianity. This is not this is not biblical teaching at all. I don't know what this is. I mean, this this is if if he were a therapist, he'd actually be brought up on malpractice charges. I mean, this is the kind of stuff the snake oil guys who sell their stuff in the middle of the night on the infomercials. That's what this is. But that is a sure sign you're a big person with a big destiny. You may feel small. You may not see how it's going to work out. But you've got to remember who you are, a child of the Most High God. You have been created in His image. You're wearing your crown of favor. You've got royal blood flowing through your veins. Uh, what about sin? I mean, he's saying this to just a generic audience, right? You, you, if I'm a non-believer and I'm listening to this stuff, wow, I've got royal blood running through my veins. Well, Scripture doesn't say that about a non-believer. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 says something quite unflattering. Um, Paul writes, he says, as for you, you were, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, as for you, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived uh, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And like the, re the rest of mankind. It would, does Scripture say to a non-believer they got royal blood running through their veins because they were creating God's image? No, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says that all of us by nature are children of wrath. Doesn't, roy, I guess we're children of royal wrath. <laughs> it doesn't work. When times get tough and you don't see a way out, don't go around complaining, oh, this is never going to change. No, dig your heels in. Have the attitude, I've come too far to stop now. This may be... Where does this say this in Scripture? ...the extraordinary, but I know I'm an extraordinary person serving an extraordinary God. And every morning you need to remind yourself, you are equipped, you are empowered, you are anointed, you are strong, you are talented, you are creative. You have been armed with strength for every battle. There is no challenge that's too difficult for you. No sickness can hold you back. No person can steal your destiny. No legal trouble is going to defeat you. Your enemies may be powerful, but our God is all-powerful. One thing I love about God is He will never give you a Goliath without giving you Goliath-sized favor. All David had was a slingshot. I can't, I can't go on. <laughs> Uh, I can't do it. I'm starting to shake with anger. <laughs> Folks, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's actually what the Bible warns us about in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let me read it again. It seems to be a common theme running through stuff today at Fighting for the Faith. Paul, writing to young Pastor Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God. And of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That day is today. 
what you've just heard is not sound doctrine. And why this man is popular is because he's a teacher who is telling people what their itching ears want to hear. They want to hear that they are an extraordinary person. But they don't want to hear that they are a sinner, wretched before God, a child of wrath who needs to repent of their sins, realize that they have nothing to offer God, stand guilty and naked before him. And like the tax collector can only pray, Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear how extraordinary they are. And to hear proofs of how extraordinary they are based upon the fact that they have extraordinary challenges because extraordinary challenges just prove how extraordinary you are. This is satanic teaching. Because Satan was all about himself, wasn't he? I will ascend to the highest heaven. I will be like God. I will, I will, I will. Me, me, me. I, I, I. It's all about me. That's the heart of satanic religion. It's self. It's, and that's what this is. This isn't Christianity. This isn't what the Bible teaches. And Joel Osteen has the blood. of Many, many tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people on his hands because he's not preaching to them the full counsel of the word of God. Sad and true. Okay, we are at the end of our show. If you would like to email me and let me know how extraordinary you are, um, you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, God bless. 